Today we begin a new adventure together. We're studying the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this series will focus on the first half of Mark. We'll a little bit later in the year study the other half. Uh, while I was working on this series, I was doing my study prep for this series, I had to make a quick detour to see my knee surgeon. Uh, he removed a fairly large amount of nasty fluid from this knee and then packed the now empty space with steroids and platelets and blood-rich plasma and all that kind of stuff. The effects, I'd never had that done. I'd never had the injections of the, of the platelets and steroids. The effects were fascinating. They were wonderful and fascinating. Here's a couple of things that happened. My blood pressure is normally rather low. My blood pressure went through the roof because of those steroids. I was so excited. Oh my goodness. I was walking around the house. I was quoting Peter Pan's Lost Boys to my family. No need sleep. Braves go days without sleep. Go to I ran upstairs with no pain. I ran upstairs and went up and just typed and I just wrote and wrote and wrote. I'd never gotten so much done in my life. The next time you are crunched on a deadline, <laughs> ignore the energy drinks. Just go get some platelets and some steroids. It is amazing how much you will get done. Here were some other outcomes. This is what happened as a result of that injection. Um, the, the wounded, hopeless tissues in my knee began to heal. They really did heal. Everything seemed very immediate. It was all happening very quickly. Now, I don't remember much of that day, but, but there are certain moments that are really, really vivid to me. I remember the pain of the monster horse-sized needle that was stuck into the, into the deep in my joint of my knee. I remember the rich conversations I had with the doctor and the nurse. Uh, the doctor, turns out, is a believer in Christ. He's a believer in the Creator. We had some wonderful conversations about the Gospel of Mark that I was working on. The nurse, by the way, her boyfriend, marrying material. I really, I really liked him. We got that taken care of. I remember... I remember the amount of vivid yellow fluid that was drawn out, great big old needle, 18-something cc's came out of there. It was really wild to watch it just fill. And, and I remember, oh, I remember the Slurpee that my sweetheart bought me on the way home as a reward because I didn't wiggle much uh, when all the needles were in my knee. And somehow, even though they were separate little instances of that day, somehow those moments give me a they give me a powerful account of the whole day. And later, you probably can already see it, but later I realized that I had been granted a, a tiny physical picture of Mark's gospel. Think about it. Mark is a breathless book. I, I mean, in Mark, things are happening so quickly. There is so much getting done. His favorite word is immediately. The word straight away or immediately is used 41 times in this short book of Mark. You're going to see it a bunch in what we read today. Uh, the account is miraculous. There is miraculous healing going on. 209 out of the 661 verses in Mark deal with Jesus' miracles. This is a, this is a book of wonders. There are moments in Mark. Mark, Mark thinks very logically. It's really remarkable, remarkable writing. But it, it's vivid momentary pictures. They're, 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 they, they hold together and give us a powerful picture of Jesus, but it's kind of like remembering scenes of the day. And, and speaking of blood pressure, I told you my blood pressure got raised temporarily just for a bit. Uh, boy, Jesus, Jesus raises the pressure of the time. In Mark, it's a book of conflict. There is conflict all over the place. In fact, the blood pressure gets raised so high that people lose their minds and they end up assassinating the Messiah himself. 
All, all that may explain why I started our notes with this. If you look uh, in your bulletin you got when you came in, if you're in here, if you're with us elsewhere, if you look online and, and download the notes, look at the notes and you'll see the first thing. Mark is a steroid shot of Jesus. We live in a wounded, dysfunctional, swollen world. Our systems don't work right. We unsteadily totter through our days as a culture, as people. It is a world that needs a very healthy dose of Christ. And unlike my earthly steroid injections, Jesus' presence changes things permanently. There is no diminishing return. Like my steroids, unlike my steroids, there is no diminishing return when we get infused with Jesus. All God's people said, amen. So with that in mind, can you think of anything we need more than a blood-enriched plasma steroid shot of Jesus? Can you? Me either. So let's get started. Open your Bible. Second book of your New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. Let's go to Mark chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 through 3. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Stop there. I told you Mark was breathless. If you've read them, just think about Matthew and Luke. They take hundreds of words to get up to this point. Mark just launches right into Jesus' ministry. By the way, we're going to be covering the thought sections of Mark in fairly large doses because that's how it's written. We, 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 we need to make sure we always learn from the text according to the way it's written. It's not that we're not going to stop and reflect on telling images. We are. For example, look at the very first phrase. Look at it again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beginning. Which Old Testament book does that sound like? The beginning. What does it sound like? Yeah, it sounds like Genesis, doesn't it? The, the first book of Moses that we call Genesis. Mark is making a very obvious parallel. Jesus, who is very God, brings the new beginning for which creation has been groaning. Scholars will tell you that Mark was originally written for a Gentile audience in this city, in the city of Rome, and that is almost certainly true. However, sometimes people forget that Mark was a Hebrew who lived in this town in Jerusalem, and he also wrote as a Hebrew. He wrote as a Jew for all people. This is a book intended for Jew and Gentile. That's why the very next thing that he does is reference Isaiah, the great prophet. And by the way, he includes with Isaiah a little snippet there from the very last prophet, uh, Malachi. It is a brilliant way to set up a statement that's coming later in the book. Later in the book, we're going to find out that Jesus summarizes all of Moses' law and all of the prophets. So he starts with Moses in verse 1, and he continues with a quote from the prophets so that we know this Jesus, he's the fulfillment of everything. Now that brings up some things that are really helpful, I think really helpful to know before we go further. First, let's get to know Mark. Mark is a rare individual. Our adopted daughter, Chris, she sent me a really funny and ridiculous note about this. Uh, here's the lion. A lion is in medieval heraldry, uh, the symbol of Mark, the gospel of Mark. Lion says, are you Bartholomew, Jeremiah, Hezekiah, Zephaniah? No, I'm just Mark. Um, that's funny. But he's not just Mark. Um, Mark. Mark is a remarkable person. Thank you. I'm here all week. Um, here's a few things. Here's a few things we know about this author. Here's what we know about Mark. His actual name was John. That was his Jewish name. Now, now John was one of the people, and this wasn't 
This wasn't completely rare, but it wasn't widespread either. He was one of these people who had a, he was a Jew. He, he was a Jewish citizen, but he also had Roman citizenship. Who's probably the most famous person that had that? Does anybody know? The Apostle Paul, right, yeah. Okay, John uh, was the son of a lady named Mary. She was a wealthy Hebrew widow. They were Roman citizens as well. Uh, his Roman name was Marcus, or we would say Mark. Uh, their home was almost certainly a large Romanesque villa. We know from Acts chapter 12 that, that the early church, one of the, the earliest church in Jerusalem, held meetings in their home. Um, it, probably the closest we can get to it is if you've been to the Getty uh, uh, museum in California. It's built on the exact plan of a large Roman mansion. It's probably the closest we can get to their house. John Mark was with his cousin Barnabas, uh, Barnabas, son of encouragement, his cousin, uh, and the Apostle Paul. The three of them were together when they set off on the first great church planting journey ever in human history. Really exciting stuff. But when they were in Asia Minor, uh, John abandoned them. He deserted the team. Uh, presumably because of intense persecution. You can read about that in Acts 13. Paul, dealing with himself, the, the pains of political pressure of being a Hebrew of Hebrews and also a Roman citizen, Paul got so unhappy with Barnabas over John Mark that they actually split. After that journey, uh, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark back on the team. And Paul said, no way, that quitter's not coming back with me. I'm not having him on my team. And so they split. Barnabas actually took Mark and they went to the island of Cyprus and Paul took off with Silas on other journeys. After an indeterminate period of time, we don't know how long, Peter uh, engaged with Mark. Simon Peter, the disciple, the apostle, he invested so deeply in Mark that in 1 Peter chapter 5, in Peter's first epistle, he refers to Mark as my son. Uh, Paul eventually, this is really cool, Paul eventually found John Mark to be useful again as well. Paul who had said, no, I don't want that guy. He ends up at the end of his life in First Timothy or 2 Timothy chapter 4 saying, send John Mark to me because he's useful to me. I love it, he's useful. Isn't that cool? He also recommends Mark to a whole bunch of other Christians. Uh, Mark writes, and this is important, he writes like a well-educated Roman. Um, the Roman nature of Mark's presentation is especially seen in how he depicts Jesus' crucifixion. Here's what happens. By the first century when Mark wrote, the triumph of a Roman general, the triumph riding through the streets of Rome, that had developed some, some very regular practices that were part of it. Mark is very careful to display Jesus' crucifixion as a triumph. He, he, turns, <clears throat> he turns the march to Calvary into a victory parade. <clears throat> Excuse me. We'll get into this more later, but it's really fascinating. It's so hard. So few people see this aspect of Mark's writing that it's hard to find any artist. This is the only one I've ever found that actually understands what Mark is doing, making the Calvary a triumph, a victory parade. Agnolo Gatti, and we'll look at his painting later when we get to that section of Mark. Mark also thinks like a well-versed Jew. His gospel contains at least 63 allusions to the Old Testament, although only one direct quote, which is very rare. Um, he references a wide variety of Old Testament sources, Moses, Elijah, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Samuel, Malachi, and the Psalms. Now, if the book was written around 64 AD, which is very likely, it seems likely, the focus on conflict suffering in this gospel, it would have seemed especially pertinent. All ages face conflict and suffering. Everybody has trials. 
But in 64 AD, there was a particularly nasty guy named Nero, who was the emperor of the world. And he was persecuting, for the first time systematically, he was persecuting Christians. And this is a book written to Christians in Rome who are facing some really dark times. What a life. Mark is a remarkable person who wrote a brief gospel. Now, of course, in response to that, you're asking in your Inigo Montoya voice, gospel, you keep using that word. What does it mean? Great question. Thank you for asking. I think Dallas Seminary professor J.D. Grasmick explained it best. Look what he said. A gospel was a unique literary form in the first century. It was not simply a biography of Jesus' life, a chronicle of his mighty deeds, or the reminiscences of his followers, though it, it contains elements of all these. Rather, a gospel is a theological proclamation to a particular audience of God's good news, centered in the historical events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Close quote. Now, Mark may have been the very first gospel penned. We don't know for sure. We do know the tone of the work is singular. Get this now. In Mark... The gospel is shared in, in an environment of great conflict. In Mark, there are 20 instances where Jesus is in direct conflict with the religious leaders. They come at him. There are another 18 instances in the gospel of Mark where Jesus is in conflict with his own disciples. Conflict and suffering are the way for every single person who will take up his or her cross and follow Jesus. The only book... The only book that I can find that is remotely like Mark in terms of, of, of tone and brevity and, and Roman wit is, is this book, uh, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, uh, especially the first one about the actual Gallic War. Um, if, you, if you have time, and it's a very short book, if you have time, read Caesar's Gallic Wars. I think it will give you a mindset that has you ready to better understand Mark. Mark is a remarkable person. He wrote a brief gospel to an original audience. Now, that audience was probably one or more of the Gentile churches in Rome. We know from Romans 16, there were a bunch of churches in Rome. Many of them were headed up by, and probably most of their attendance was Gentile, and it was these churches to whom he wrote. Here's why. Peter and Mark were there in Rome. Uh, at least, if, if 1 Peter chapter 5, when it uses the word Babylon, if that means Rome, and nearly every scholar believes that it does, then, then Mark's actually in Rome when he writes. A generation later, uh, this guy, Clement of Alexandria, he claimed that the Roman Christians, they themselves asked him to write this account so they could get to know Jesus better. There's internal evidence in the book that speaks to a Gentile audience. Um, only one Old Testament quotation appears. That's very rare. Um, Jewish customs are explained, which would make you think he's writing to at least a somewhat Gentile audience. And then this one's really, really different. Aramaic phrases are interpreted. Um, in, in, the, in the Mediterranean world, uh, the, the whole eastern half of the Mediterranean world spoke Aramaic. There would have been no need to explain an Aramaic term. The only need to explain them if you're writing to Greece or further west. So, it would make sense that he is writing to Gentiles in Rome. The Jerusalem temple is depicted as a house of prayer for all nations. It's also interesting to note what's not in Mark. The absence of these things, to me, speaks also to a Gentile audience that knew very little about Israel. Look what's not in Mark. Jesus' preexistence. That wasn't important to this audience. Neither was his genealogy or his birth narrative. His childhood including a very Jewish submission to his parents, his growth in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man. That's not in Mark. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, long discourses, those aren't in Mark. 
Uh, many of the parables aren't. And the woes to the Pharisees that appear in all the other Gospels, not in Mark at all. Wonderful John Mark writes a gospel to an original audience for a specific purpose. Uh, look at our notes. You'll see my summary of, of the purpose. The purpose of the book is to present Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, the one to believe in and follow. Here's how my old friend Mark Bailey put it, no relation. Uh, Mark said, the message is similar to the sermonic form employed by Peter in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10. Two major confessions in Mark, uh, Peter's in Acts chapter 10 and the centurion in, uh, in Mark chapter 8 and the centurion uh, in Mark chapter 15. The two confessions in Mark highlight the purpose of Mark by showing that a representative of Israel, Peter, and a spokesman for the Gentile world, the, the centurion, both acknowledge the identity of Jesus. Now, with that background, we can better understand the next part of our text where John bulldozes a path for the Messiah. Let's study the next section. Uh, it's verses 4 through 8, but let's start at the beginning to, to get the connection. Okay, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. John came, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." John was the bulldozer preparing the roadway for Jesus. A few significant points about him are enumerated on the right side of our notes. You can see them there first. He was under a Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow was described in Moses' law. It was usually temporary. Nazarite vow was a voluntary lifestyle. Um, it included, let me just summarize, it included a, a special diet, uh, no booze, and not cutting your hair as a way to show dedication to the Lord. So basically, it was all of you under quarantine without alcohol. Um, this vow, by the way, was prophesied from John's very beginning. Uh, Luke's account, Luke chapter 1. The angel said to him, he's talking to John's dad, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him what, everybody? John, there will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never drink wine or beer. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Zechariah, John's dad, was a priest. That means John was of the priestly line. He is directly related to Moses. This isn't just some random guy dunking people out in the Jordan River, okay? John was fulfilling his calling as a priest. He was fulfilling prophecy by announcing Messiah and turning people to God. That's why he preached repentance. Look at Mark's Greek. Look up, look up here um, at the Greek, if you would. John came baptizing and proclaiming. Baptizon is, is a form of an old word for, for dip, it means to submerge or immerse something as a sign of change. It, as Pastor Jeremy pointed out during our baptism, uh, it's, it's a deep word for identity. 
The thing being baptized is showing a new identity. Proclaiming, the other word, is a word for a herald or, or an announcer. Kerison uh, is a word that seems to have begun with the Greek games. Um, it, it was an announcer for the Olympic contests, somebody who was heralding news. And now in this corner, by the way, have you thought about announcers? Announcers are a really important part of our life. Who's, who's your favorite announcer? Is it, is it Chuck Morgan at the ballpark in Arlington? Is it Don LaFontaine? Um, and in a world where... Is it, um, uh, is it Eric Nadell on the radio? Raise your hand. Somebody raise your hand. Tell me your favorite announcer. Who's your favorite announcer? You got it. Yeah, who is it? Keith Jackson. Keith Jackson. Oh, Nelly. That's amazing. Yeah, Keith Jackson. That's a great one. Who you got? Chick Hurt. Oh, very nice. Very good. Very good West Coast of you. That's quite good. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, the, um, who was the one? I saw Laura here. Who was the one in Detroit? I forgot his name. It was so famous. What was his name? No, well, Al, the one that was with him that would always say, there's a foul ball caught by the lady from Silver Lake. You know, and it was always he would choose. And they were great, talented people, announcers. Here's my favorite announcer of all time, John the Baptizer. That's my favorite. He apparently has a bobblehead as well, um, <laughs> which is really cool. That's what it means when it says he came to proclaim. He's an announcer. He's announcing. And as he baptized, what was John announcing? Look, look at your text, Repentance. Now, this is the only appearance of this word, metanoia, what we translate repentance, in the entire book of Mark. Metanoia means a, a change of mind. It means to turn about. This is emphasized by the people's confessions. Look what they're doing. They're admitting when they're confessing their sin. I am out of line with God's will. I am turning to God. And what's more, this baptism is in reference to the forgiveness of sins. Aphesin. The word we translate forgiveness, aphesin, is a word for, for removing a barrier, for moving a barrier out of the way. In Scripture, it, it pictures God's grace removing barriers that keep people from Him. That barrier, listen carefully, that barrier is always removed by God. It is always removed by His perfect sacrifice. It has always been the case. Just, just look through all of history. In the garden, who, who made the clothes for Adam and Eve? The Lord did himself. He sacrificed. He's the one who made the prediction about what would save them. It, when Abraham had this most amazing covenant established that continues to this day, we're part of it. it the, the covenant God made with Abraham. Who walked through the blood? The, the, there's an old, old, old kind of treaty system where two people would walk through the blood. They would meet in the middle. And what they were basically saying is, if I break this covenant... Let this happen to me. Let me, be, let me be killed and bloodied, okay? And both people are supposed to walk through. Is that what happened in Genesis? Any of you Bible scholars? Is that what happened, yes or no? Who walked through the blood? God only. Only his sacrifice was a unilateral covenant. The Messiah, we are told in Isaiah, is going to be a suffering servant. We're told throughout the Old Testament, he is going to be the one who is going to suffer. God is going to himself be the one who takes the pain. The barrier is always removed by God's perfect sacrifice. Every Jew knows that the removal of all barriers is going to come through God the Messiah. He's the one who pays the toll. Makes a way for the barrier to be removed. That's what John was proclaiming. Look, he was baptizing those who trusted God's plan that Messiah was going to come pay for sin. The great 20th century pastor, Ray Stedman, he wrote a long passage about sin and guilt and fear. It's a timeless essay. I, 
I only have space to read the little part that concerns Mark chapter 1, but here is a fabulous observation of what John the baptizer is doing. To be experienced, says Stedman, forgiveness requires, afecine, forgiveness requires a change of attitude in the heart of the offender. That is, forgiveness must be accepted by the one who's given the offense. God removes the barrier, but you have to accept it. You got to walk through. He goes on. The, the offender has to acknowledge that he is guilty of an offense. This is repentance. You must change your mind. Stop justifying it. Admit that it was hurtful, and then the pardon can be experienced. That is why John preached repentance, because, and this is a great phrase, because repentance is the place where God meets man. Close quote. John came preaching repentance, and he had a massive impact. Look again at verse 5. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. Um, the hyperbole here is making an astounding point. Since Nehemiah, about 500 years before this, no prophet has had this kind of following in Jerusalem. And the grammar is telling as well. Listen again to Dr. Grasmick. He says, the imperfect tense of the Greek verbs, we're going out and we're baptized, it, it portrays an emotion picture fashion, the continual procession of people who kept going out to hear John's preaching and to be baptized by him, close quote. One more thing about John the baptizer. He places all his focus on the Messiah as God incarnate. Look again at verses 7 and 8. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm not worthy to hide the strap of his sandals. This is not false humility. John genuinely thinks the one for whom he is preparing the path is beyond his reach. How many of you play guitar? Raise your hand, even if you just plunk around. Raise your hand if you play guitar. Come on. Okay, a bunch of you do. Some of you really well. You play really well. You're really good. Thank you. But even if you play really, really well, are any of us worthy to reach down and turn on the amp for Eddie Van Halen. Come on. We're not. We're not, right? He's the headliner. We'd be happy just to open the concert for him, right? In the same way, John is honored to be the front man for the Messiah. Let me show you a cartoon that I think gets it. This is Agnes Day cartoons. Uh, one lamb is saying to another, you know, John the Baptist is the ultimate opening act. Okay. He knows how to work a crowd. Yeah. And he knows he's not the headliner. Nice. That's pretty good. And note this. John refers to Jeremiah building powerful logic. This is, this is Roman logic right here. And this is brilliant. Okay. John quotes from Jeremiah 31. He alludes to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 declares that Almighty God is the one who will give his Holy Spirit to people. Jeremiah 31, God says, I will give a new spirit to you. Okay. John the Baptist says, this is a person coming after me who's going to give you the Holy Spirit. So the only and obvious conclusion is that John is stating that this one who is coming after him is fully God and fully human. Wow. All right, now with that in mind, We've met John Mark, the author, the opening, uh, the, the, the writer. We've met John the baptizer, the opener of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, let's meet the final member of our Mark 1 concert. Give it up for... What's his name, everybody? Jesus. All right, next section, verse 9. Go to verse 9. Jesus surrenders in ministry preparation, starting in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. 
As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. During the NBA bubble season, the uh, young all-star Luka Doncic was absolutely amazing. He was amazing. Not only did he play great basketball, what may have been most amazing is Luka submitted to his coach and to his team. Other players of lesser talent in that bubble were grandstanding. Some of them were trying to be in charge of their teams. But Doncic chose a path of submission to his team. And that's a little bit like what happens here. Mark 1 reveals to us uh, two things that are, that are really rare. Jesus is described with two different passive verbs. Jesus usually is not described with passive verbs, but he is here. We're shown two things that happened to Messiah that he submitted to. Jesus surrendered to the Father's plan and authority, letting these two great events unfold on him. First, he was baptized. Remember baptizo. Baptizo is the, the dipping underwater. It describes identity, right? Well, Jesus here is identifying with all these other people who have been baptized, the very human people who have come out to John. And yet notice that he is not confessing sin. Did you catch that? There's only one person that comes out to John that doesn't confess sin, and that's Jesus, because it would, be, it would be a lie. He has no sin to confess. You see, Jesus isn't only identifying with humanity. In his baptism, he is identified as God the Son. This is absolutely breathtaking. This person is a person of the triunity. I was blessed to officiate another wedding this week. I've, I've been honored to do hundreds of weddings. At nearly every single one, there is a moment, there's a moment where I cannot help. I, I, I flash back to my own wedding. And I remember, I remember standing there with the pastor and then seeing everybody turn and I turned and there was the, the veil moved and the doors opened and Jana came in in all of her glory. And, and all I could think was the same thing over and over. I just thought, for me? And then, and I, and I know this sounds funny, but then as Janet came down the aisle, I had a feeling that I've never, ever gotten over since, that myself was coming to me. This was, this was my, this was the fullness of myself that was coming to me. That's a tad like Jesus' baptism. Jesus, God the Son, stood in time-space. And God the Spirit invaded time space, coming through the veil to come join Jesus in the Jordan. And the Father spoke. Because of that combination, Jesus, who is fully unified in the triunity of God and is fully identified with humanity, because of that combination, those who trust Messiah Jesus are transformed. The rest of the New Testament shows this. I, I love how Pastor Stedman put this. He said, the glory of this gospel message is that the Father is ready to treat us exactly as he treated Jesus. We Christians ought to say to ourselves every morning, this is what my Father says, because you are in Christ. You are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. That is what gives us a sense of security, an identity, a place to stand, which means we can be calm and unthreatened when everything goes to pieces around us. This is where it comes from. No other source. Close quote. Now, read verses 12 and 13. 
Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. Here's the second passive verb used of Jesus. He was tempted. He is being tempted. So much to learn here. For today, I want us to just key on the passive aspect of this. Again, there's great logic here. Mark's, Mark's very logical. Look what he's, look what he's saying. Let me, let me just ask you. Is there anyone more powerful than Jesus? Even if you don't know Jesus, just assume that what Mark's saying is true, that he is God the very Son. Is there anyone by definition more powerful than him? Yes or no? No. Okay. Is there anyone more deserving than him? No. And yet, yet, he submits to his partner, Peter, the person of the Spirit. The Spirit drove him. He submits to that. He allows the being that he created, Satan, to tempt him. This is amazing. So tell me, friends, why do we treat submission like a curse word? Kids won't submit to school authorities. Athletes feel entitled to control their coaches. Husbands won't submit to God's direct command to love their wives with continual self-sacrifice. Wives won't take the co-pilot chair. Church members won't submit to elders. Texans won't submit to anybody. And I'm just talking about the Christians. I'm just talking about the Christians. We somehow think that we're more special than Jesus. Just to dispel that idea, look what Jesus endured. Forty days of extreme isolation and temptation. Tempted in every way that we are. And all at once, like, like being, it had to be like being sprayed with a fire hose. Think of every wrung out moment of your life. Every loss every temptation, every anxiety, every pain. Think of them all. Ouch! Now imagine all of that without food. Maybe more importantly, without human contact, without relenting. All those horrors coming at you at once without relief. Could you handle that, yes or no? No, neither could I. Yet for some reason, we think that we are above submission to God's plans, that we're above Jesus. Look, look, look at verse 13 again. Have you ever laid down with the wild animals? Just tell me, anybody here ever been accepted into the pack like Mowgli? Uh-uh. No, I didn't think so. How about angels? They ever appear physically to you and serve you and bring you things that you need? No. Then stop being afraid of submission. Identify with Jesus who is great and mighty and shows us victory through surrender. After that preparation, Jesus launches his work. First thing he does is preach in Galilee, in his old home area. Verse 14, after John was arrested, do that later, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And here it is summarized for us. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Some big ideas are introduced here. These are going to be hugely important in Mark's gospel. Jesus preaches or proclaims like a herald. The term is the exact same one Mark used earlier. Remember, proclaiming, kerison, is the word for being an announcer, right? Now, kerison showed us that John was a herald. He was an announcer for Jesus. Well, Jesus also announces. What does he announce? Good news. Good news, two words in our text is actually one in the original. It's uh, evangelion. 
Evangelion uh, is a term whose meaning, this is really rare, its meaning didn't change over hundreds of years. You know how rare that is for words in any language? They usually morph with the time. Evangelion stayed the same for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, it always meant joy, joyful news. It almost always meant peace, but, but peace that came through victory, through triumph. Okay, that's Evangelion. Uh, in his play, The Equites, uh, Aristophanes used the word. There it is, Evangelistai. Uh, he said, I bring good words, happy news. Demosthenes, famous writer in, in Greek history, wrote something called Corona. Had nothing to do with the virus. And, um, and he has this quote, I am not the one who was seen rejoicing and laughing at the success of the alien announcing good news. Close quote. That is really significant. Now look at those sentences and how it's used, Evangelion, and think. If you picture Jesus proclaiming, preaching like some droopy little sad person, like Jonah at Nineveh, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. If that's how you picture Jesus, very meek and submissive, you're wrong. That's not what Evangelion means. That, that, that you haven't read Mark. That's that's impossible. Or maybe you picture Jesus preaching like some fire and brimstone preacher screaming at people, right? Spitting on them, right? Is that, you're far enough away, you're safe. Don't panic at home. They're, they're, it may not look like it. They're a long ways away from me. You're okay. Um, if you think of that, you're wrong. That's not what Evangelion means. This, this is how God's kingdom's kingdom comes. Look, John Mark used the exact same construction as Demosthenes, and he used it on purpose. He wants us to see Jesus rejoicing and laughing at the good news, the good news he brings for people who were alienated from God by sin. Rejoicing and laughing at the success of the alien, announcing good news. This is how God's kingdom comes. Repent, change your mind, and turn toward this great fun news. Sinners, and that is every single human who's not Jesus, sinners do not have to remain alienated from God. All God's people said? Now, let's close out this thought section. Jesus launches his work by preaching. That's the first thing he does. Second thing, he calls followers. Look at uh, verse 16 where he calls his followers. As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, this is not the first time they've met. These young men were sometime followers of John the baptizer. And, and Andrew had earlier enjoyed a very personal encounter with Jesus. In fact, he, he brought his brother Simon, uh, whom Jesus renamed Peter, to, to meet him. Remember now, these are almost surely very young men, which makes this even more remarkable. Except for Peter and, and maybe Andrew, because they already owned a business. In that time, a business could not be owned by anyone under 18. And since we know that Peter owned his boat, the word used for him is an owner, um, the fisherman word means an owner, he had to be over 18. The others are almost certainly between 12 and 16 years old, teenagers, because that was the age at which one followed a rabbi and studied with a rabbi. But these guys didn't plan on that. They either weren't great students or they didn't want to do that because they have not anticipated becoming disciples of any rabbi. They haven't been in schooling. They're working. 
So when they leave their nets, this implies a lot. It means they left everything behind. All their plans, their careers, possibly girlfriends, their family. A teenager friend of mine has made the same choice. She has made the choice to follow Jesus. And, and so knowing I was teaching on Mark 1, she showed me uh, what she wrote in the side of her Bible. She made a little painting and wrote, follow me and I will make you. Now, don't think this is an instantaneous thing, okay? The, yes, the choice is immediate to follow, but, but that's not the end of the story. This just begins a long process. The, the original writing points this out. Okay, look, look at your Bible. You see come or follow, depending on your translation. That's actually two words in the Greek, okay? Devte, devte is the first one. It's a, it's a commanding calling. Um, th this is the exact same word that, that Mark is going to use later for when Jesus calls Lazarus forth from the tomb when he brings him back from the dead. Devte, come. It's a, it's a word that is very commanding. But when it is combined with opiso, the second word, the meaning, the meaning changes a little. It's, it's still something commanding, but it's a command that it continues as a protracted process. Old Dr. Wust, um, old Dr. West, West said it best. Uh, look what he said. When opiso is used with devta, as in follow in Mark 1.17, it includes the idea of a long, slow process of becoming, close quote. Followers of Jesus walk with him. They are ever in process of becoming. They join Jesus in fishing for people and being a herald and sharing the good news. They live ever in light of Jesus calling, follow me. That's why our Latin ancestors developed this term. Our Latin ancestors brilliantly developed this term, anno domini. It means in the year of our Lord. It's true no matter what year it is. Followers of Jesus are always walking with Messiah. They are always in the process of becoming in the year of our Lord. Now, course you're wondering in relation to that in your Vicini imitation what does that mean for me great question Vicini thank you for asking if you're a Christian Mark 1 means this is not merely a horrible year of a plague it means this is not just a season of a wildly upside down election it is the year of our Lord it means we keep in step with God that's why Mark keeps saying immediately immediately because following Jesus is a rush I love the way the actor Stephen Baldwin put it to me right after he became right after he became a Christian Stephen Baldwin met my friend Dan Southern and Dan took us to lunch together and I asked Stephen what what it was like being a Christian and he said the most fascinating thing he said it's a rush and then he said this he said following Jesus is like falling up through an elevator shaft that's brilliant but you may be asking in your impressive clergyman voice, what if I'm not a Christian? <laughs> well, simple. Begin the change. Repent. Believe the gospel. Everybody read it with me. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, all together. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Pray with me. Father, I pray for anyone who is studying with us today who is not a believer in Jesus. And Father, I thank you that you love them and you call them to come and begin the great change. To start the process 
the long, slow, beautiful, powerful process of becoming. It begins in a moment when we drop our nets behind and we follow Jesus, when we believe in him, when we recognize who he is, fully God and fully human. Friend, listen, if you don't know him, Jesus, he is God, the son. He is a human person and he died on the cross to pay for your sin and mine so that everyone who trusts him could follow him. He didn't stay dead. He rose from that grave to everlasting life so that if you're in him, you grow with him. If you've never done so, trust Jesus right now. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand. Everybody else is still praying. Just look at me and raise your hand. I want to rejoice with you. Good. Good. If you're, if you're with us elsewhere in the world and we are still one and together, please write a note to the host and let them rejoice with you. Thank you. Father, I pray for all of these people who are believers in Christ, some of us very long-term Christians, some very new. And I pray that we would follow Jesus. By your grace, we would always be in the year of our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.